or a conference, or I don't know, some kind of mix in between. What do you call a group of people who like coffee? A festival or conference? I'm not sure. Um, but I went there. I was like, these are my people. Like there was, uh, there were all sorts of people who were like local roasters or um, local, uh, like kind of coffee experts. They would talk about things like. Um, different temperatures and how that affects different kinds of roasts. And I'm like, yes, please. I want to hear more about that. Can I sign up for that conference, please? Um, I went there like, these are my people. Like, I totally get it. Uh, it was wonderful and beautiful. And I came away far too caffeinated. Everybody there was kind of jittery. Um, so I hope it was the coffee. But I think generally we all like belonging. We all like that feeling of like, this is, I belong here. This is a, this is a spot for me. Speaking of coffee. But I wonder, uh, on the opposite side of that, have you ever gone somewhere, maybe a place where you expected to belong, to a party, to a home, to a church maybe, and you kind of felt out of place, overlooked, like there wasn't a spot for you, like you just kind of don't belong there. There was this uh, wedding that Christina and I went to years ago in America um, that where the people who were involved in the wedding really knew each other like really well. They were like very, very tight friendships. And I didn't really know them at all. And so the whole time I was there at the wedding, Christina kind of knew them better than I did, but still wasn't kind of like in the in-group of people. The whole time I was like, what do I do with myself here? Like they're all interacting with each other, like, you know, having fun, being goofy, dancing with each other and stuff. And I just guess I just didn't really feel like I belonged, even though I was invited. I still didn't feel like I belonged. Now I think there are lots of situations that could bring up this feeling. Uh, social situations, sometimes actually living through grief and loss can really live that. It makes you feel like you're on the outside of life while other people are living it. Um, moving to a new country, I'll, that'll do it sometimes. Um, what do we do when that feeling comes up? Because we're all going to have it. What do we do when that feeling comes up? Really, actually, the question is probably, what can we do? We can't really do much about it. It doesn't feel great. And more often than not, there's not really much we can do. In this story that we have today, we learn that Jesus was overlooked, that his family lived through loss. And it's that in that actual very context of not feeling like you belong um, even though you're supposed to, it's in that context that he, the Messiah, comes. He was overlooked. He was not taken seriously. Uh, he comes in this context of outsiderness, if we could use that as a word. He didn't really have a home. We talked about that a little bit last week. Now, because all this is true, that means that there is a hope that we can have even when we feel like we're missing out, even when we feel like we're on the outside looking in. And Jesus was born into and embraced the world that is in order to create the world that ought to be, the world we really all want to be a part of. And as we go, um, definitely send questions to redeemermcr.com slash ask. I was, there's already a question that's come up, and um, Paul, if, if I don't bring it up, definitely um, remind me. We go through the question at the end of the sermon. Um, so we're just going to get right into this here. The, the first thing that we see here is uh, Matthew, what he does, he brings up this uh, a lament. He's quoting the Old Testament. We've already seen Matthew likes to do that a lot. He's going to be doing this a lot in the future. He likes to talk about fulfillment and what that might mean. But he brings up a lament, a song of sorrow, and then he says that Jesus fulfills this. What in the world does it mean to fulfill a lament? I don't, I, the more I thought about that, the more I realized I don't think I know what that means. I think really what that means is uh, if the Messiah comes in a place of pain, I think, and this is a bit of spoiler alert where we're going for the rest of the sermon, but really what it means is everything sad is going to come untrue. And I completely stole that line from J.R.R. Tolkien. 
Um, and I have no problem saying I did that, because who, what kind of pastor would I be if I didn't bring up Tolkien from time to time? Uh, so a line stolen from Tolkien. There's a question that's asked from the hobbits asking uh, Gandalf, who's the wizard. He says, is, is everything sad going to come untrue? And the hobbits ask this question, and the reason why that connects with humans as we read it is because we ask this question. And for, fulfill, for Jesus to fulfill a lament, the answer to that question is yes. And Jesus does it first by dealing with our deep need. Uh, but let's see where in the world that comes from here in the Bible. Uh, Herod, he's uh, in his rage, has decided to kill all the boys in Bethlehem. Um, now, so, tradition has said, like, oh, that meant, like, thousands of kids. I think it was most likely it seemed to be, like, 20 to 50 kids. But still, one kid would be pretty insane, wouldn't it be? This guy is going to kill a child, a baby, because he's afraid someone else is going to usurp his throne. What a, like, a psychopath. Um, I mean, Herod was famous for uh, lots of other atrocities. Josephus, who was a famous historian around the time of Jesus' resurrection, uh, records lots of instances of Herod killing off entire families and competing political parties just to defend his position. In fact, there was a plan, and um, there was no proof that it was ever actually carried out, but it was Herod's plan that once he died, all the top-level Jewish nobility would be slaughtered as well so that people would really mourn and would know what loss felt like. I mean, he's, he's something else, Herod, this Herod. If you remember what we talked about when we brought up Herod previously, I think it was last week, that Herod had a very self-focused life. That's a, maybe a, not, a, it's not a big, massive step to say. And that means whenever we live a self-focused life, that means we're stealing from other people because life is all about us. But let's talk about where, so this is, this is what Herod has done. And in response to what Herod has done, Matthew is bringing up this Old Testament quote. Now, he's quoting from, uh, for, verse 18, he's quoting from Jeremiah 31 in the Old Testament. Now, Jeremiah 31, it's a very hope-filled chapter. It's all this, like, God's going to do these great things, even though there's these difficult things that are um, kind of in God's people, in the path of God's people. But this particular section that he quotes is like the saddest verse of that whole chapter. And the, the background here, the kind of narrative background, is the people of Israel are being taken as refugees to Babylon. In the Old Testament, after Israel was a, good, was a nation, as it was created, there was some good years, but it wasn't, didn't take long for it to kind of, but again, it's kind of steep decline. And what happened in this decline is God's people were not following God, and through that, were not really caring about justice, and through that, they would grind down people who were poor so that the rich people could stay in power, and poor people stayed that way. Sounds kind of similar to the way maybe life is continued to be uh, today. It's continued for a very long time in Israel, Whole books in the Bible document this decline. God sends many prophets like Jeremiah that Matthew's quoting from here to persuade the Israelites over and over and over again to turn back to him, to stop living in this way that is unlike the way God wants us to live and turn to him in order, and live the way that he wants us to live. But turns out the Israelites are just like us. They're pretty stubborn. And eventually, though, the consequences of sin catch up with them as they are will for us. And one of the consequences of not following God as God's nation, we, it meant that that nation became weak, became weakened, and um, wasn't built to be the strong kind of nation that God had envisioned them to be. And that meant it was very easy for these other outside nations to take them over. And that's exactly what, they happened, what happened. And in the Old Testament, what we hear is the reason those nations took over Israel was a sign of judgment upon God's people so that we would actually live in the way that God's called us to live. Now, that time of, uh, of leaving Israel and going to Babylon, they're sort of taking over by Babylon, and basically, like, the majority of Israelites become political war refugees, and they're all taken off to this other place. Different culture, different language, got to learn different trade, all sorts of things. And that time is called the exile or the captivity, and this is the period that Jeremiah is writing. 
So that's the kind of historical background of Jeremiah speaking here. And what, what Jeremiah is trying to say here is, um, so Ramah is the place where the exile began. That's where the Israelites began their march away from God's promised land out to the some other world. So that's, that's where the, the voice is heard is in Ramah. Weeping and great mourning. Rachel is a symbol of, of faithful Israel, of what the Israel that could have been. And the faithful Israel, the Israel that could have been, is weeping over her children who are now being carted off to this other country through judgment. And not only that, they're also refusing to be comforted. They're, they're basically like the walking dead at this point. They don't want God to comfort them. They don't really want anything. They just want to kind of like survive, possibly. Their hearts are so far away, they don't even want to be comforted. Now, this is a story that Matthew says Jesus fulfills. What in the world's going on there? Because it seems like they don't match. What's, what's going on here? What does it mean? The lament in Matthew comes on the heels of the consequence of others' sin. So the Matthew situation, it's Herod killing all these children. Now, those children didn't do anything to deserve that. Like, Herod's doing it. So the consequence of someone else's sin. Of course, the Old Testament uh, context is come, the lament comes from someone else, like their, our own sin, the consequences of our own stubbornness, our own difficulty, and kind of what we actually do deserve. So whether it's someone else's uh, consequences or our own consequences, either way, in our own lives, we kind of both experience that as pain. If you are trying to hammer in a nail and you hit your thumb, well, you're like, oh, I hit my thumb, I'm dumb, and I need to learn how to nail better or not do it and hire somebody. Now, if you're holding the nail and someone else hits your thumb, it's their fault, right? What are you doing? Like, learn how to deal with a hammer before you start hitting my thumb. But either way, your thumb still hurts. The same kind of hurt. It comes from a different perspective, the same kind of hurt. And that is the context. That sadness, more than our thumb, is the context in which our Messiah comes. The consequences of other sins against us, the consequences of our own sins that we carry in ourselves. That's what Jesus is born into. So it's not a fake life. It's not an Instagram life. This is like normal life. This is a real life. And if the Messiah is born into the context of sadness, to fulfill a story like this means that there is hope beyond the sadness. There's hope beyond disaster. Whether it's something we rightly deserve, as in our own sins, or something someone has done to us, there is still hope beyond it. Whether it comes as a consequence of our own sin or from someone else's sin, in sadness there is hope. And that hope, as in Matthew, may not be experienced on earth now, because those babies still died. We may not experience all the aspects of our hope now. Israel still went into exile, and they were refugees in Babylon. But for Jesus to fulfill a lament, that means there is a day where everything sad will become untrue. That's what it means for Jesus to fulfill that. So our deep need is that we are born into that same world that Jesus was, where we mess up and others mess up and, and mess us up. A world with irreconcilable sadness. And maybe your life is kind of okay. You know, actually, you know, well, it's all right. You do a quick scroll on any kind of news site, and you just see, like, destruction and horror everywhere. Have you ever read, I mean, I may not suggest it, um, especially if, if you're uh, sensitive, but have you ever read kind of any individual story of someone who's gone through the war in Ukraine at the moment, like a, an individual or a family? It is heartbreaking. It is horrible. And that's just one story among loads of people feeling difficulty. And that's just one event over a whole world full of difficult events. It's one small blip in the worldwide scale of sadness. Now, I know you aren't perfect, and you know that too. 
but you might be like most people who don't think your imperfections are really kind of all that bad. Our God has spent eternity, literally eternity, generously pouring out his love on us. Can you think of a being like that? Someone who's loved you like immensely, but beyond something you can even, that your brain can even fathom. Every second of every hour of every day. And then we find it difficult to spend one hour with him, don't we? I do. I know you do too. It's okay, we can say that, it's all right. We're religious, but we're okay, I think, maybe. How sad it is that we miss out on that massive, overwhelming, insanely generous love. That is sad in itself. That is really sad, and all of us do. We're so busy kind of spending time on whatever thing can be shining up to steal away our attention that we miss out on a great love. That's a sadness that we're all born into. God with no needs has come into our world with our deep need, and Jesus has come to make everything sad become untrue. He does that first through fulfilling our deep need. And he does this as a nobody. Jesus is a nobody. He lives a life of a refugee. Do you know any famous refugees? No, you don't. You only know them if they're famous after like, becoming refugees and they did something amazing, like Albert Einstein or somebody like that. Like, you didn't know Albert Einstein while he was a refugee. Like, you don't know any of these people's names as a refugees. How did the almighty God come to earth? As? In the form of a refugee, in the form as a nobody. Nobody knew his name having to flee his homeland to another because there was a, an oppressive regime in power. This is not, unfortunately, this is not a unique kind of story. It happens all the time and it happens in our day. What is unique, though, is that the Son of God chose to come to earth in that way. He could have came any way he wanted. That's the way he chose to come to earth. Surely there's meaning in that. A refugee is a nobody, generally according to the world anyway. We might try and care for them, but no one would say like, oh, refugees have a really good life. We do such a good job caring for them. Like, no, we kind of merely, barely pass it if we're lucky. But more than a nobody, uh, refugees are without homes of their own. That's the whole kind of, that's the whole definition of a refugee. You don't have a home. You have to flee it. Jesus was born into the world that he created, and even in that, he didn't have a home. So Jesus, from the beginning, tells us with his life that this world, as it is, is not our home. It's not our home, dot, 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 yet. And that ellipsis is kind of where we live. It's not our home. One day it will be, but we're living in this ellipsis, those dot, dot, dots. Jesus is also, from the beginning, what he does, and we've seen this before, he identifies with the weak. He's not identifying with the strong. He, of course, he has more power than anyone's ever had ever. And how does he choose to identify? He identifies with the weak. There's meaning in that for us. He is strong. He doesn't need to abuse his power to stay in control, unlike Herod, who's doing the complete opposite. Jesus has a strength that affords him the ability to identify with the weak. And if you've never felt at home, uh, have you ever had times where you've not felt at home, like secure and safe, or, or more than that, really a place where you could be known, where you really know people well, where people get you, where people are like, ah, these are my people, like the coffee people that I got to interact with. And that, of course, is a superficial level, but, you know, something deep in my soul there probably too. You know, I have my own issues with not feeling at home. I mean, first off, my family growing up wasn't a great home most of the time. Now, you guys have heard some of that with my father. He was oppressive and at times an abusive ruler. Most of my life growing up was trying to navigate others' peace and just not, or just not kind of be around. Um, we also moved around a lot growing up. I felt like it was just as soon as I got really good friends, I knew that's when we, when we would move again. And we had to often. We moved a lot growing up. I always felt like just when I got good friends, you know, and those friendships, they really give you a feeling of home, don't they? 
Then also for me, living in a culture outside the one that I grew up in comes with its own difficulties, as well as other things in our lives. I don't always feel like home, and that's just kind of how it is, and that's fine. We're happy to be here, and um, we feel at home here more than probably anywhere else we've lived. But there are times, I don't know if you, I'm sure you have that too, and I hope you have this too. There are times where I ache for kind of wanting more, wanting more from this life, of, of wanting a home, and not just a building or a thing like four walls or whatever, but a people, you know, like people who get you, people who give you that sense of, of not just security, but, uh, but something more. There's, a, there's, a, there's a, a, a meaningfulness to life that when you're interacting with that. Now, going to America is not going to solve my problem. In fact, it makes it worse because I realize it's really not my home. I long for something more than that. Then there are times where that ache, that lament seems to be fulfilled. There are times, uh, experiences, times hanging out with people uh, where I've experienced my my own family to really be that kind of home. Uh, Times with Redeemer where that home has really broken through. But those are just tastes. They're not here forever. They're like smells from another room that kind of come wafting in. Mm, I was telling um, Augustine and Alicia, like, I love the smell of coffee when it begins kind of brewing. I feel like there's a lot about coffee this morning. (laughs) Just realizing this, I might have a problem. Nah, probably not. Um, But it's like when that coffee goes on in the other room, you're like, oh, man, it feels good. There's something about, like, there's something happening over there, and I'm going to get to it. I don't have it right now, but I smell it. There's an anticipation. We, and really, those smells can come in, and they can kind of function also a little bit like starters. Like the starters come in when you have a really good meal and you have a starter. They, you, you might have the starter, but the main courses are yet to be served. Now, don't confuse the starter with the main. Right? What we have now is not the main. But also, don't, uh, don't, don't um, be so put off and think that the main will never come, because the main will come. It's in the oven. It's cooking. We get tastes. And if you're not hungry now, see, Jesus, what he's doing here, he's creating a home for us. He speaks in the Gospels about the Father having a house of many rooms. And this is what he's preparing for us. Rooms for us. Why should we get a room in a big, massive manor house that the Father is, is, is hosting for us? This new home he's creating is the new heavens and earth. This is not just something for himself, but for us. For all who long for a home, there is one. And what is a home without a loving family, Right? And because this is true of our future, we live into that as much as we can now. And this is what Jesus is talking about in John 14, 23. Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him. We will come to him and make our home with him. He doesn't even say, you're going to come and you'll, you'll make a home with us. He says, we will make our home with you. The Trinity making their home with us. That, <laughs> I, I could think about that all day and kind of maybe get 1% of it. What an amazing kind of idea. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit make their home with us. It's staggering. And this is why it's so important for a church to truly reflect what a loving family ought to be. As much as we can. We know we're not perfect. We know we're kind of stumbling together. But this is really what we are. And this is also, this is where we're going. To act, not, to not act in this way is actually to say something else altogether about who we are and where we're going. Jesus was born a nobody. He identifies with everybody. He was born into this world that is with all its aches and joys in order to create the world that ought to be. And this is why a church is more than just one event. It's a set of relationships at which we live life together. So he fulfills our deep need as a nobody. He also does it from a nowhere place. 
from a nowhere place. So you have Joseph, Mary, and Joseph. They're in Egypt, and now they're coming back to Israel. They had to flee Egypt because Herod was going to um, hunt down Jesus and kill him, um, or they had to flee to Egypt there. So they come back from Egypt now that it's safe. Uh, but they end up going to a different place, a, a small town, a small area called Galilee, and even a smaller town called Nazareth. Nazareth was so obscure, and there are a couple historians then, that they're literally listing the towns in, in Galilee, and Nazareth isn't even listed in there. It's just kind of like a ham, like not even a hamlet. It's kind of like maybe a couple houses and a barn or something like that. The sign upon entering Nazareth was probably like, not worth mentioning, like, Proceed. So let me actually, if, if you are um, not a scholar of ancient Palestinian geography, I'm not. If you are, then you can just kind of zone out for the next five minutes. Um, here's a, a kind of map of the area. So you see Galilee is up north. Uh, Judea and Bethlehem is down south of Judea. That's where it was happening. That's like the London of Israel. All the stuff's happening there. That's where the li- religious leaders are. That's where the political leaders are. Now, I don't know if you can imagine. If, 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 picture from, with me a nation where the north has a different culture than the south, and where the south has, or at least those of us in the north think the south think they're the best, you know? And, and the north has a bit of a chip on their shoulder, because you know what? We don't need those people down south telling us what I don't know if you can imagine such a thing, but this is what was going on in Israel at the time, that for, what, what good can come from that grim north area of, of, of Galilee? Like, nothing good could come from there. In fact, so much of Matthew is organized around this, the geography of, of where Jesus ends up and the pride of people who think they have it completely missing out on who Jesus is. So Jesus is completely missed out in Judea, sort of gotten a little bit in Galilee. And also further ongoing proof that Jesus didn't conform to traditional expectations of power and status. Jesus came from the wrong place. He's a nobody, a refugee coming from the wrong place. He doesn't identify with the strong. He identifies with the weak. He is strong and doesn't need to abuse his power to stay in control. Now, if you were making up a story about a strong leader or even making up a story about a God, what we have here and what we will continue to have in Matthew is exactly the opposite of what you'd make up. You would write about somebody strong if you're trying to make something up. You'd write about someone from the right place if you're making it up. You'd write about somebody who wasn't a refugee, certainly not a refugee. You would write about someone with the right kind of power, set to lead in powerful ways, not a God born as a nobody from nowhere who dies a sad criminal death. You just wouldn't make that up unless you wanted nobody to follow you. But this story in Matthew is exactly the kind of story that if it's true, can only be true if Jesus is who he says he is, if Jesus is who Matthew said he was. If it's true, the story only makes sense if Jesus is who he says he is and who Matthew said he was. This story is powerful really for the only reason, because it's true. There's no other reason for it to be powerful to us. He came from a nowhere place and invites anyone from any place. And not just geography, it's wherever you've come from in your life. You know, maybe you have the wrong accent, whatever that is. I don't know, I'm just American, I have... I have no class. Uh, Maybe you didn't go to the right uni. Maybe you didn't go to to a uni at all. Maybe you're too middle class. Maybe you're too working class. Maybe you don't know the right people, aren't from the right people, don't look and act like the right people. You're not from the successful and those that look like they made it. Of course, Jesus comes for those, and he also comes for the misfits and those who don't quite fit in. All have the same deep need, and all are invited to bring their deep need to this nobody from nowhere. So how does this nobody from nowhere actually deal with our deepest need? We said he does, but how does he do that? 
Well, Matthew says Jesus fulfilled being called a Nazarene. That's the very last verse. Uh, how he went to Nazareth and so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, Matthew, uh, uh, commentators are kind of torn on what that might mean. And Matthew talks a lot about fulfillment and what that means in the Old Testament. And commentators are like, maybe it could be this thing, could be this thing, could be this thing, because it's actually not quite clear of what Matthew means for Jesus to fulfill being called a Nazarene. uh, After looking at a fair bit of them, I feel like (coughs) what made the most sense was uh, was, uh, Matthew referring to Isaiah chapter 11. So in Isaiah chapter 11, there's this word branch that's used, and that's very similar to the word that would be used, I mean, not in our English, of course, but Matthew wasn't writing in English, FYI, Um, but it was very similar to the word um, Nazarene, this word branch, this word Nazarene. And a lot of commentators are like, well, maybe this is kind of what he's talking about. Um, And and I think given all the options, this seems to be like the best option, although I would admit there's definitely a level of mystery here that we may not completely understand. Uh, here's where the quote comes from and the few verses afterwards. And the context, I think, is also what might make sense for Jesus as well. It says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch, there's that word that might, that can sound also like Nazarene, very, very similar. Um, His roots, a branch, will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. I think this really falls in line with a someone coming from nowhere. From a stump grows a tree, a healthy tree that grows and gives off fruit. The product of this tree, like its fruit, is unlike anyone else. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. This quote, this, what Isaiah is talking about is talking about the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, reverence. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. This Jesus is unlike anyone else. This is what Matthew has been teaching us so far. What does this nobody from nowhere ultimately, uh, unlike anyone else, ultimately do? He has the wisdom, the understanding, the power, all of it. What does he do? He creates a home for us, a home for the nobodies, a home for people who are from nowhere, a home for all who are tired of dragging the, the deep need with them behind them and just want some kind of freedom, just want some kind of rest. This home is what the Bible calls the new heavens and earth. That's one place, new heavens and earth. This world remade, remade into the world it ought to be. Our hope as Christians is not heaven, but in the marriage of heaven and earth. And that's the future all those who follow Jesus have to look forward to. It's how the Bible describes what our real hope ought to be. It's in the future, yes, but pieces of a break-in, kind of like the smells from another room or getting served starters before the main. To know someone on a deep spiritual level is an aspect of that. To feel the love and grandeur of God in nature is an aspect of that. To hear his words to us in the Bible, these are all good smells from the oven and something really good is cooking. These good smells should create in us a hunger and anticipation. It should create in us a longing. And that's why sometimes, if you ever had that melancholic feeling of something that happens that's really good and might, you might leave yourself, you might leave it a little bit sad because what those longings do is they create space in us that can't be fulfilled by anyone else other than God. Uh, St. Augustine, who lived in around 400 AD, wrote this. I love this quote. The whole life of the good Christian is a holy longing. What you long for, as yet you do not see, because that's what makes a longing, but longing makes room in you that shall be filled when that which you are to see shall come. One, it, it will come. And one day those longings will be fulfilled and we will find that satisfaction. That ache will be completely 
done away with. We won't have those hunger pains anymore because we'll be feasting on that main meal. And the space that our longing makes, though it might ache now, it will be filled. And Jesus' cross was really the tip of that spear where God's mercy and justice met in death. Jesus was born into the world that is in order to create the world that ought to be. And this is what left a crack for this new world to come through. In fact, it's more than a crack. It's this huge, massive hole. The cross dealt with the penalty of our deep need, our sin, through Jesus. It doesn't have to be our sin. If it's his, it's not ours anymore. And if it's his, that sin's destroyed. Jesus' resurrection is what gives us the power to continue to live in that longing. The Holy Spirit, given by Jesus, allows us to know God's love. And more than that, to join him in the remaking of this world. It's more, we don't just get to enjoy it, but part of the enjoyment process means we join him as he's active working this out in this world. He invites us to be a part of this world that is, to reflect the world that ought to be. And we cannot do that ourselves. But God gets to empower us to be able to do it. And one day, Jesus will return. He will. His return will be the beginning of this new world being remade, being made new. And we will get to be with him. So when we are overlooked, when we feel that ache of home, even when we become the victim of others misusing their power, we can still hope. Everything sad will become untrue. Jesus is creating a home for us nobodies from nowhere who have been rescued from our deep need. And let's not waste that, but let's join in with him. Let's be present with others. We have to make that a priority. Whether it's Sundays or missional communities, there's really not much it's very little to just show up and even to show up and help. It's very little part of your life, but I guarantee you it will completely alter and change your life for the better. We ought to be really praying for others for these things that we talked about here, and we really can't do that well if we aren't with them and don't really know them. And of course, we need to be active in others' lives in the church and outside the church because a family surely is more than a label, surely is more than a name, surely is more than a single event, It's a way of living, and the family of God is one where there is always room for more people at the table. And we have to be talking about this to others, right? If we don't, who is? And I wonder, in what ways are you on the outside looking in? Because a home is meant to be lived in, is meant to be enjoyed. A generous home is a place where there is always room for more. And what might it look like to take one step Closer, one step further in, wherever you might be. Every step in is a step towards love. Every step in is a step towards being known, towards understanding in new ways how a nobody from nowhere took our deep need away from us and gave us everything. And when we take the Lord's Supper together, it is a symbol of being at home with each other and the Trinity. Now, this is not yet the kind of uh, how the Bible describes this marriage feast in the new heavens and earth that we were going to get, but it does, it's a part of that breaking through. It's a family meal where we get to experience in a different way the love of God. This is a meal for those who are in God's family. So if you're not part of God's family, um, please don't um, join in with us. Now anyone, this is the thing, anyone can be here at his table. But if you aren't yet, um, please just wait. For those who are part of God's family, there are lots of ways to eat and drink together. But let's do that today with the gratitude and the joy that comes from our deep need being taken by Jesus. As a nobody, he identifies with us even in our weakness. And coming from nowhere, he invites us to come from our nowheres. Our wandering as spiritual refugees in this world, what he does, he creates a home for us. A temporary home for us now and a real home for us in the new heavens and earth. And the cost for us to be able to do this today, and and not only for the new heavens and earth, the cost was nothing less than his life on the cross, his body and blood, symbolized here, they were given up. 
so that in our bodies and in our blood, we can now eat and drink in the hope of a new heavens and earth. Jesus was born into and embraced the world that is in order to create the world that ought to be. Everything sad will become untrue. Let me pray. Lord, we come to you as uh, people who maybe don't belong as much as we would like to, people who even when we do belong still know that there's some kind of limit, some kind of ache. Lord, we come as people who don't have it all together ourselves and desperately need somebody who is to be at work in our lives. And what you do for us is you pour out your love. You have an embrace for all of us, an embrace where you draw us close, where you hold us close and hold us tightly. And in that, Lord, we find a home. Within the Father and the Son and the Spirit, Lord, we find a home. In order to be able to live out being a gospel-formed family on mission, Lord, we have been found by you first. Before we get to be a gospel-formed family on mission to others, Lord, your gospel-formed family on mission came to us through the Trinity and even through your church. And we ask we might be able to live this out, and in doing so, we would be able to discover new areas of your love, new areas of your grace, new areas of, of your blessings that, um, that are left to be discovered. We pray and we sing in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now what we'll do in a moment here is we will eat and drink um, as we sing. So Sam's going to come up in the moment and lead us in some songs. And as we worship, we will eat and drink. And let's do that also with, that, with the feeling of gratitude, of joy, of we don't have it all yet, but one day we will have it all. And that's an amazing thing to be excited about. That is the hope. That is the Christian hope that we have. And that's what ought to kind of give us the energy for us to live out uh, these days that don't often feel like that. Um, but before we get to there, um, there's a question that was sent through about um, the, uh, the Old Testament prophets don't actually mention a Nazarene. How is this? that he should be called a Nazarene. Yeah, it's a great question. I think um, there are a few uh, other, um, I kind of touched on this briefly, but there are a few other ways to take what in the world is Matthew saying when he says this was fulfilled, that it was said for the prophets, he'd be called a Nazarene. Um, but I think the, um, if I had the Hebrew in front of me, I would be able to say it, uh, but I, I can't remember exactly what it is off the top of my head. But the word for Nazarene is like, it would be like maybe the difference between um, uh, oh, I can't, now I can't, I'm trying to think of two words, uh, uh, want and went, maybe, could be, like, there's like, it's just a slight vowel difference, um, and the, uh, a lot of commentators, and, and not, not even, like, newly, but historically, this has generally been seen as a call to that branch thing that Isaiah, that Isaiah talks about. The branch theme in Isaiah is a big theme, and that's the one part where it comes up. Uh, and it's all about the Messiah and what the Messiah will do. This branch, this faithful branch is going to come from Israel. We talked a lot about that last week as well. Um, and I think of all the options that are out there, that seemed to make the most sense, not only for what might happen um, grammatically in that verse uh, on a word level, but also what's happening context-wise, what Matthew's trying to do in that chapter. Um, but that said, I couldn't say that I'm 100%, yes, this is definitely what Matthew was saying. So there's always a little bit of uh, unsurety with some of those things. Um, but that's, I think, the best answer we have. So I would love to chat on a more nerdy level if you want to. Um, very happy to do that, and we can do that some other time. Thanks.